Good morning and welcome to the Guts and Glory SGH Gastroenterology Podcast. I'm Dylan. And I'm Ching Han. And I'm Andrew. Uh, and I'm pleased that you listeners are able to join us today in our podcast where we try to provide in-depth practical discussion with local experts from Singapore General Hospital. So today we have a, another special guest uh, with us. And what is our topic today? Today's topic is on hepatobiliary infections. We have with us Dr. Ong Wai Chong. Uh, Dr. Ong Wai Chong graduated from National University of Singapore. He underwent further training overseas at the Asian Institute of Gastroenterology in Hyderabad, India. His current interests include interventional endoscopy and general gastroenterology. He was also the program director of the Sync Health Gastroenterology Residency Program from, 20, from 2018 to 2019. Okay, so before I pass the time to uh, Dr. Ong Wai Chong to ask him some questions, I'd just like to ask uh, Dylan and Chinghan. I mean, when we receive patients from the emergency department, uh, often we see one of the diagnoses is hepatobiliary sepsis. It's a very common indication for admission. But from, from your understanding as, as residents, what's when you see an admission titled hepatobiliary sepsis, what are the thoughts that go through your mind? What exactly are we talking about? I feel like hepatobiliary sepsis it's actually nothing really very specific about it. I feel like we use the term when we don't really know uh, where exactly the infection is coming from. But like the name suggests, it can be coming from the liver or the biliary system. And it may or may not include some form of obstruction. Okay, so, so that's a great start. I think one of the problems is there's so much confusion to under, even understanding this term, hepatobiliary sepsis. And people use it very loosely. right? So now I'm going to pass the, the time to... Wai Chong, I'm just going to ask him some questions. Okay, so Wai Chong, can you, uh, I mean, if someone asks you what you do for a living uh, in your, in your, to make it interesting and to make it short and succinct, what would you actually say to this person? Well, the question is, what do I do for a living? Well, the answer would be to live life. Uh, from a professional standpoint, my job is that of a gastroenterologist. So that's taking care of patients with uh, gastroenterology problems. Sounds interesting enough. Okay, so another question. So what do you do when you're not at work? How do you preserve your sanity such that work doesn't consume your entire being? Number one, you shouldn't be living life for work itself. The work just pays the bills. I think the important thing is actually to realize there's a lot more to life than work. Um, when I'm not at work, the whole idea would be to live life. Um, I run my job, I swim, I cook, I enjoy playing with my computer, I build my own computers, I run my own service. So simplistically put, I don't think we should be constrained just by our job and we should be living life to the fullest. You know, usually sometimes it's interesting to think about different members of our department having different kinds of special powers, right? So a lot of times if you ask the trainees, uh, what is uh, Dr. Hong Wai Chong's special powers? Okay, so they will say generally one of two things. Okay, the, I think the first thing they'll say is uh, he has a tendency to philosophize everything. Okay, that means he, he can take a very simple concept, a very simple case, and it becomes a philosophical argument slash uh, conversation. So that's one of his special skills. Right? And then the second actually is that uh, if given a choice to be with any consultant on a bleeder call, most SRs would say they'd rather be with you. 
Okay, so this is a, a compliment because I think what they appreciate is the, the steadiness and the, obviously the technical ability for you to actually guide them through a difficult leader case. And I think this is one of the things that many of the SRs actually do say. Right, so, so it's kudos to you. Right, so uh, we're going to play a little game also to ask you what would you rather. Okay, so we've asked this question to different individuals before. So I'm going to ask you the same question again. If you were given a choice, right, to have uh, one entire week, uh, one entire month of doing leader calls and one entire week of running non-stop clinics, that means Monday to Friday, morning and evening, all clinics, which one would you actually choose and why? It's probably me neither. But you have to choose, but you have to choose one. I mean, life is such that you have to choose one of lesser evils. Um. I don't think it's actually a lesser evil. Rather, I look at it in terms of trying to plan. Um, what I mean by that is that as long as I'm not doing two things at the same time or being at three places at the same time, I'm actually happy doing whatever I'm doing. So running clinics morning and evening for one whole week, I'm all right with that as long as each patient actually has an allotted time that's reasonable. Doing leader calls for a month, I'm also comfortable doing that as long as there's reasonable time to get the case done. I mean, I don't honestly mind what I do. Um, it's just that some things are physically not possible. Okay, so listeners, that's the, the way to answer a question from a consumer professional. So you see, that's exactly what we wanted to, to bring up for him. Okay, guys. Okay, thanks. Thanks so much for this session. Now, uh, Chingan, can you take us through the case? Uh, what case vignette do we have today? So today we have a patient, uh, Mrs. Manny Stones. She's a 45-year-old Caucasian female that presented to the emergency department with a two-week history of abdominal pain associated with some change in the color of her urine during this period. She has no significant past medical history aside from hyperlipidemia. Her initial investigations were significant for a hemoglobin of 12, a white cell count of 18,000, and platelet count of 500. Her liver function tests show an albumin of 40, ALP of 300, ALT of 90, AST of 80, and bilirubin of 150. The emergency doctor gave a provisional diagnosis of hepatobiliary sepsis and admitted Mrs. Many Stones into the gastroenterology inpatient service. When, when you see the term hepatobiliary sepsis, what, what, what is your understanding of the term? How do you, do you define it in a certain way? Or is there an actual definition of it? Um, when it comes to hepatobiliary sepsis, the term actually means that this infection and the infection lies within the hepatobiliary tube itself. In the context of the A&E, the A&E doctor's role is primarily to triage the patient and to make sure that the patient is actually moved along the healthcare pathway. When they are presented with the problem of abdominal discomfort pain, uh, right hypochondrial pain, the patient is noted to be jaundiced. The LFD is actually abnormal, consisting of a mixed cholestatic hepatitic picture. Then the diagnosis of hepatobiliary sepsis is actually appropriate. In the absence of imaging, quite difficult to be convinced because the same clinical pattern can appear if you have liver abscess, 
if you have acute cholecystitis, and even rarely if you do have perihepatitis. So, Dr. Ong, uh, can you tell us a bit about gallstones? Uh, you know, why do gallstones form? And what are the different kinds of gallstones that we deal with? So, gallstones traditionally are divided into pigment stones and cholesterol stones. There's a third option, which is actually a mixed stone that can form secondarily in dilated systems. We do know that cholesterol stones are actually associated with female patients, 40 fertile fat, so the four Fs. Pigment stones occur in patients who actually have um, hemolytic conditions. If I may ask, you know, what's the typical history of somebody who comes in with biliary pain and how do we differentiate it from dyspepsia? Biliary pain or biliary colic is a typical colic. The simple way to think about it is actually a smooth muscle tube that has um, smooth muscles. So the pain is typically rhythmic, severe. So when colic happens, if you take the NRS scale, it would be 8, 9, or 10 out of 10. They would, patients would actually say that it's very severe pain or the most severe pain. True to the nature of colic, it will crescendo and decrescendo. In dyspepsia, it is very uncommon for the pain to become so severe. So I'm just um, add um, my, my perspective. I mean, I totally agree with my chong. I think this differentiation of dyspepsia can be very tricky sometimes. The biliary colics that we tend to see, as, as mentioned, they, they tend to have a pain that is out of proportion to what they usually experience. And it stops them from doing the things that they are doing. And sometimes they can even remember what, 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 what they were doing when the pain comes because it's such a memorable type of pain. Whereas the patient with uh, your run-of-the-mill dyspepsia is a gnawing discomfort pain that just happens on a day-to-day -day basis. And sometimes it happens so often and so constantly that they don't even remember what they are doing when the pain actually comes. So you, you can get a patient who have uh, a bit of both and can be very tricky to differentiate, but it is that at least a typical biliary uh, colleagues are distinctly different from dyspepsia. I think the important distinction here is that from a clinical perspective, dyspepsia which literally translates in layperson's term, is an indigestion, whereas biliary pain is a colic. I think as long as we distinguish between dyspepsia and colic primarily as two separate clinical syndromes, that should be the starting. Thanks so much, Dr. Ong. We've heard about things such as Murphy's sign as well as Shepard's tribe. Could you explain to us what these two are about, as well as what are some of the other physical findings which are relevant in evaluating a patient with hepatobiliary sepsis. So Murphy's sign is right hypochondrial pain that is actually worsened with inspiration. What it does is that mechanically, when you take a deep breath, the liver is actually pushed down with the diaphragm, therefore pushing down the gallbladder. When the gallbladder comes into contact with your hand, the right hypochondrial that elicits a discomfort. Now, Charcot's triad is a clinical syndrome. Right hypochondrial pain, fever, and jaundice. When you look at the source of the infection in a patient who has Charcot's triad, the original focus would be to look at the hepatobiliary system and to determine that the infection is actually there. 
it is not the local infection that actually kills the patient. Rather, it is actually the systemic manifestations of uncontrolled sepsis that results in mortality. Okay, so to move on to the next segment, you know, on examination, uh, Mrs. Manny is alert but febrile. Her blood pressure is 90 over 40. Her heart rate is 110. And her oxygen saturations are 99% on room air. Her abdomen is tender but without guarding. Murphy's sign is negative, but she is generally tender in her epigastrium region. Dr. Ong, in evaluating someone with you know, hepatobiliary sepsis, what other blood tests and investigations are useful for you? So your assessment can actually be divided actually into two large categories. The first category is actually to address the source of which is in the biliary tree. For that, imaging is actually required. Now, the imaging can come in the form of an ultrasound of the abdomen or the imaging can come in the form of a CT scan. Usually when patients come in from the A&E, depending on the hour of the day, if it's during office hours, an ultrasound is actually easy to organize. But usually after office hours, it's easier in the context of our hospital to actually get the CT reported in the night. So that takes care of the imaging of the hepatobiliary tree. Now, in addition to that, you actually have to address the systemic infection risk that the patient has. So in that aspect, a full blood count, a PTPTT, platelet counts, things that actually tell you that there is evidence of systemic infection. So for example, if you see your PTPTT getting more prolonged, if you see your platelets uh, crashing, that's evidence of DIBC, you'll be more alarmed or concerned about the patient. So for a patient with hepatobiliary sepsis, how do you risk stratify them to know whether you know, they are at risk of decompensation or perhaps require urgent intervention? Now, presumably, when we have done the imaging, we are actually looking at a patient who has got cholangitis in this aspect. In cholangitis, you've got two circumstances. In one circumstance, the biliary tree is actually very badly obstructed. The right and left intrahepatic ducts are grossly dilated. The common bowel duct is huge. In those cases, the amount of actually pus within the system is actually substantial. So in these cases, drainage of infected material is actually important. Now, the second consideration is actually your patient's functional reserve. If you have a very elderly patient, a patient who is frail, even a small amount of systemic inflammation may cause other problems. So in these circumstances, a patient who has a lot of obstruction with upstream dilatation and pus inside the biliary tree should be drained. And conversely, if you've got an elderly patient who has actually very poor functional reserve, you should consider earlier drainage. So to move on with the case, the oncologist doctor starts her on some IV ceftriaxone as well as metronidazole. He then decides to call you, the oncologist ERCP person, to give you a heads up on this patient and the potential need for intervention. We presume that based on what you described to us about risk stratification, that this is someone you would want to watch closely. For hepatobiliary sepsis, you know, are there any specific choices of antibiotics? And you know, what would they be? So for hepatobiliary sepsis, um, your antibiotic of choice is actually a broad spectrum 
antibiotic that covers gram-negative infection. There is actually no requirement for anaerobic cover unless there's a suspicion of an abscess. So, rosatin alone is actually adequate. Doctor, could you tell us a bit about ERCP and what is the role of ERCP in hepatobiliary sepsis and when should we arrange for it? So, the role of ERCP in hepatobiliary sepsis is when the hepatobiliary sepsis is actually caused by cholangitis. Cholangitis specifically is actually when the infection is actually localized into the biliary tree. There is no role for ERCP if the medical condition is actually perihepatitis, a liver abscess, or cholecystitis. So what ERCP actually does is that we, via ERCP, we are actually able to drain fluid in the biliary tree into the duodenum. So in the setting where the infection is actually in an obstructed biliary tree, ERCP allows for source control of the pus within the biliary tree. Dr. Ong, uh, we often see that in many patients, biliary stents and sometimes pancreatic duct stents are put inside during ERCP. Could you explain to us what's the role of these stents? So for biliary stents, these are actually used to drain the biliary tree. So in the management of cholangitis, Stents actually allow for immediate decompression of an obstructed system. Pancreatic stents are used sometimes during ERCP because they allow for added safety. One of the biggest risks during ERCP is actually the development of pancreatitis. Pancreatitis occurs when, in the process of ERCP, we can irritate the pancreas, which is actually next to the bowel duct. The use of pancreatic stents have actually been shown to reduce that risk in addition with the use of uh, Hartman's food uh, during the procedure as well as the use of rectal NSAIDs. So, so I just wanted to ask a question on behalf of the listeners. So um, we are interested to know what are the different ways you can take a stone out from the biliary tree. So we've seen words like balloon, basket, all sorts of words like that that scares patients. Like, uh, I mean, they start being confused about how a basket is going to go into the biliary tree or a, a balloon, right? So, what, what are the many ways that you can actually take some of these stones out, and what's the most difficult stone you've ever taken out? So, the removal of a stone from a biliary tree is purely mechanical. The balloons are used as a traction device where we put a balloon into the biliary tree, we blow it up, and then as we pull it out, pull it down in the biliary tree, it acts just to attraction the stone out. As for baskets, the baskets are actually used to entrap the stone as well as traction it out after the stone is entrapped. Typically, stones fall into three categories. When the stones are 1 cm and less, they come out easily because your normal bowel duct actually can accommodate stones up to about 11 millimeters. When stones are between 11 to 15, some traction or some effort is actually required to actually pull the stone out because it's 
mechanical size issue. The stone is almost the size of a native garment. In a third situation, when you have stones that are larger than 15 millimeters, that's when it becomes difficult because if the bowder caliber is actually smaller than the stone, it is mechanically challenging to pull a big stone out of a small common bowder. In those instances, it is probably prudent to mechanically break up the stone, and we call that little trips. So we've got special baskets that allow us to crush stones. And after crushing the stone, we bring out the fragments that are actually smaller. This way, we prevent damage to ducts that are actually small. I mean, I've heard people who describe how much they enjoy crushing stones and taking stones out. They liken it to you know squeezing a pimple where they actually can squeeze a pimple and all the pus comes out and they have some kind of weird satisfaction from, from doing that. Right? So same with stones. I've heard people who, who say they would actually pay money to actually do the ERCP for somebody else. This is an actual quote from an actual gastroenterologist I know in Singapore. Right? So, so do you share the same sentiment? Do you enjoy taking stones out? I only enjoy taking small stones out. And the reason for it is because um, it helps the patient. Now, when it comes to larger stones, especially stones that are larger than 1.5, crushing a stone is actually not fun. The reason is because when you crush a big stone, you create a lot of small fragments and there's a lot of debris. It is actually technically very difficult to clear small stones and debris out from a duct especially when the duct is actually small. So personally, I would prefer to bring out a stone intact because that guarantees that you don't leave anything else inside. But crushing a stone may create more problems. And uh, quite often, sometimes, when we are unable to clear all the fragments out, we have to leave stents inside to ensure that there's drainage to come back another day. So moving back to you know talking about stents, what are the different types of stents and when do we use them? So stents actually fall into two categories. You have plastic stents and you've got metal stents. Plastic stents are actually smaller caliber stents. They are used for temporary drainage. Metal stents are actually larger caliber stents. They are used when drainage is required for a longer period of time. And typically this occurs when you have a palliative situation where a patient actually has a malignant obstruction and you need to stand indwelling for a long period of time, anything between six months to about a year. So simplistically to remember it, plastic stents are generally only good for three months to six months. Metal stents are used when you have got a requirement of drainage ranging between six months to more than a year. And lastly, you know, in these sort of patients, what's the role of the hepatobiliary surgeon? So the hepatobiliary surgeon plays an important role in addressing the gallbladder. So um, in a typical case where you've got stones in the common bowel dump, the gastroenterology role is actually to either drain the system and remove the stone at some point in time. 
the gallbladder acts actually as the reservoir where the stones come from. Especially when there are multiple stones in the gallbladder, the hepatobiliary surgeon actually plays a very important role in removing, in removing the gallbladder so that all the stones, as well as the sort of a nidus of stone formation in the gallbladder is actually removed. There is another situation where the hepatobiliary surgeon plays a very important role. And this is in the situation where the gallstone is huge. That means the gallstone is maybe 1.5 to 2 centimeters. In these instances, the, gall, the, the, the hepatobiliary surgeon actually plays a role where when they actually do the lab quarry, they can also remove a large gallstone while they're doing the lab quarry from a retrograde approach through laparoscopic means. So they can actually do a bowel duct exploration when they actually do biliary surgery for the patient. And typically, this actually has a very important, a big role when the stones are very huge. It makes more sense for them to actually remove big stones from the top than for us to try to drag a big stone up through a small distal CPT. Uh, many patients have had their gallbladders removed. And I think we, we can agree that sometimes it's not always necessary. One of the difficulties is this entity called chronic cholecystitis, which is a, often a diagnosis that is given by the radiologist uh, on ultrasound. And also in patients who come in with dyspepsia and then incidentally had an ultrasound done and then they saw a gallstone and somehow they joined the dots and believed that it was the gallstone that led to that symptom. But as we found out in many cases, that is not the case. So how, how do you make sense of this uh, entity? Do you believe that gallstones and abdominal pain equals to the gallbladder being removed? Or is there only a specific subgroup of patients that might benefit from this? If you have a situation where the radiologist reports chronic cholecystitis, generally this is in a situation where the radiological examination demonstrates a small, shrunken, contracted gallbladder with or without stones inside. In these circumstances, the imaging actually supports that there is ongoing chronic inflammation within the gallbladder. And if you have a patient who has typical symptoms of indigestion, fatty food dyspepsia, removing the gallbladder may resolve the symptoms in some patients, not all. Unfortunately, I don't think there is any data that actually says that we can positively predict which patients actually will benefit from the lab quality from the removal of the gallbladder. So I don't have a 100% answer for you on that. But I think if there is radiological evidence of chronic cholecystitis and the patient is symptomatic, it is actually a reasonable approach to actually remove the gallbladder. This is just my own personal take on this uh, issue because, I mean, if we talk about epidemiology, something like functional dyspepsia is way more common than uh, cholecystitis, whether it's acute or chronic even. And so sometimes treating the patient for functional dyspepsia and treating it well could be actually the what makes the biggest difference for the patient because I always believe once you remove the gallbladder, you can't get it back. You can't just transplant the gallbladder back into the patient. So... It has to be a decision that's not made lightly. I think patients who remove the gallbladder sometimes thinking that it's like an appendix where you can get away without it, 
it's not always true. We've seen patients struggle with weird symptoms after the gallbladder is removed. So um, getting the patient treated well um, for the dyspepsia before removal of the gallbladder, I think that should be the way it's done because it's once out, it's, it's never coming back. Um, Andrew, I think I think one clear distinction is this. Uh, if radiology actually is able to commit that the gallbladder is already shrunken, contracted, inflamed, then one possible argument would be that the gallbladder is already non-functional and potentially therefore a source of uh, irritation, inflammation without function because it's already contracted. So if we are asking for the gallbladder that is normal to be removed, that's actually a bad idea. But if there is objective evidence that it is already contracted, inflamed, I think it is reasonable. So we have actually gone through quite a bit of information. Uh, we've gone through um, the different types of presentation um, and what differentiates biliary colic from dyspepsia. We've also talked about investigating someone whom we are suspecting a hepatobiliary source of infection. We've also talked about treatment modality, which is uh, ERCP. So before we close off the session, can you give the listeners three take-home points when dealing with hepatobiliary infections? The first point is actually clinical suspicion. Historically, the suspicion of infection inside the biliary tree was a late diagnosis. That means that patients come in with systemic symptoms of infection and the only thing people notice is actually abnormal liver function tests. It used to be a situation where the diagnosis of hepatobiliary sepsis or cholangitis was generally made late. Today, we have imaging that can actually be done early. And with early imaging, we are able to make a definitive diagnosis of either cholecystitis, cholangitis, liver abscess, or perihepatitis. If imaging is actually normal, Systemic infections that can mimic hepatobiliary sepsis should be considered. These would be infections like leptospirosis, malaria, which can appear like hepatobiliary sepsis, but it's actually a systemic infection with secondary liver involvement. So that's my first message. The second message would be that if you diagnose cholangitis, which is pus within the biliary tree, do remember that source control can be rapidly achieved by ERCP, putting a stent into the biliary tree and draining the infected fluid out. Oh. Have a third message. Okay, so uh, firstly, I'd like to thank uh, Dr. Wai Chong for coming on to our show and providing us much insight into this topic of hepatobiliary infections. Now, I hope all the listeners have enjoyed the conversation and learned as much as we did. So please take a look at our website, uh, Padlet website. It's uh, accessible via our landing page. So all you need to do is just Google Linktree, which is L-I-N-K-T-R-E-E. -E, and then you also type Guts and Glory, and then it should appear as one of, of the first set of results that you see. So within this website, you can find show notes, infographics, and important reference articles for, for these topics. 
And, and for specifically for hepatobiliary infections, we're going to put up some reference articles from the, the guys in Japan who've done a lot of great work. They've come up with the Tokyo guidelines to diagnose and to risk stratify patients who come in with cholecystitis and cholangitis. Very easy articles to read. The Japanese are always very good at keeping things simple when it should be simple. Right? So uh, for the rest of the listeners, please share the podcast, subscribe it if you find it helpful, and or leave even a positive review for us so that we can keep this going. So we're honored that you'll be a part of your learning journey. So on behalf of me and my co-host, uh, until next time, take care and stay safe.